Well, again, I do just say thank you for letting me join you today. I'm going to do you all a favor and set a timer up here so that uh, I don't get carried away. Uh, let's see, stopwatch, that's what I want. Um, there are uh, lots of different type of vehicles uh, on the market today, right? If you are responsible for getting dozens of kids picked up from different homes and taken to school, you need a school bus. Uh, but if you're trying to deliver pizza, especially in an urban setting, right, school bus may not be the most efficient vehicle to use. Four-wheelers, dirt bikes, they're great uh, in certain conditions. Um, no matter how rugged they are, um, no matter... I know they're called ATVs, all-terrain vehicles, but if that terrain is submerged underwater, namely if it's a lake, you need a boat. That four-wheeler is not going to get you across. Um, when it comes to getting the good news of God's salvation to all nations, often we first think missionaries, mission agencies, right? And I, dearly, I'm, I thank God for mission agencies. My family and I were actually spent seven and a half years in Turkey, in Central Asia, with the IMB. Um, and the mission agency is a, is a tremendous blessing and, and tool in the hands of God. But um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with Paul's words in Romans 10. Uh, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But, and he goes to this series of questions, how, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, right? Those who haven't heard need to hear so they can believe and call upon the name of the Lord. But that process, that sequence of steps that Paul lays out doesn't start with preaching, right? There's one more question. He says, how are they to preach unless they are sent? Someone has to send gospel laborers on their way. And in a sense, local churches are like the ultimate all-terrain vehicle. Sometimes local churches function like a bus, mobilizing lots of people, lots of its members for local outreach, right? Sometimes local churches are more like a plane, taking a few members far away across an ocean to another people group. Or to change the analogy, each local church is like a greenhouse for growing up gospel laborers. New churches are the goal of the mission, right? Disciples of Jesus who gather as new redeemed communities and make disciples among all peoples. But churches are also the means. Churches are where laborers Preachers, resources to send them, prayers and partnership, and ultimately where the message to accomplish the mission is found. Brothers and sisters, the church, and more specifically, local churches are God's vehicle for displaying His glory in the world and getting His gospel to the world. This morning, uh, we're going to be in Acts 13. If you want to go ahead and open your Bible there, I'm going to ask for help from God one more time. 
Father, we do just pray that you would work through your word, that you would exalt your name and your grace. God, our desire is that Jesus Christ would increase. God, may you be honored. May you be pleased with the words of my mouth and the meditation of each one of our hearts in this moment. God, may we be taught of you by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, Acts is really part two of a two-part work, right? The Gospel of Luke deals with all that Jesus began to do and teach, and Acts is a continuation of all that Jesus did and taught, but in this case, through the Spirit and through His apostles. In Acts 1.8, it's kind of a theme verse. Jesus, just before ascending to heaven, promised His disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses, power to witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Chapter 2, we see it happen. The Spirit comes in power. The disciples proclaim Jesus is Lord. Thousands repent and believe. The church is born and grows day by day despite opposition. Then beginning with the stoning of Stephen, in chapter 7, there's this great persecution that arises And the disciples are scattered. And as they go, they speak the word of God in Judea and Samaria, outside of Jerusalem. Then in chapters 10 and 11, God sent the apostle Peter to declare to Cornelius, a Gentile, a Roman centurion, quote, a message by which he and his whole household would be saved. By sending Peter to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, God emphatically demonstrated something that we see clearly cover to cover in the Bible, namely that He is not the God of the Jews only, but of all nations. And that brings us to the church at Antioch. We read initially about the church in chapter 11 that some of these disciples who were scattered because of this persecution went to Antioch, and it was there that they stopped speaking just to Jews and started speaking to some Greeks Also, non-Jewish people, they believed, they turned to the Lord. The church back in Jerusalem heard about it and said, whoa, Gentiles are starting to come to faith. They sent Barnabas to check it out. He comes, he sees God's grace at work in the lives of all these different peoples. And he says, y'all, hold on just a minute, I'll be right back. And he goes and finds this guy we know as Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul. He says, hey, let's go to Antioch and teach the disciples there. Barnabas and Saul are teaching there for a whole year, says, when we come to our passage in chapter 13. So, let's start by reading the first four verses of Acts 13. And I'm reading from the ESV. I learned that you guys sometimes use another translation, but um, we're reading from the ESV this morning. I think it's on the screen. Okay. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So the first thing I want you to see this morning is that the Spirit uses local churches to prepare and call laborers for the mission. 
It's really important to see that um, before God called Barnabas and Saul to go out on this first missionary journey, that he called them from a thriving, disciple-making local church. Okay, We don't know um, everything about the church at Antioch, and surely there were weaknesses, there were problems, but they were making disciples. Okay, um, We know because back in chapter 11, Luke writes, a great many people were added to the Lord. Okay, And these disciples were being formed, shaped by God's Word. Also in chapter 11, right after telling us that Barnabas and Saul taught a great many people, Luke tells us that it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Okay, uh, Little followers of Christ. Little Christ. Uh, and I think this is more than just Bible trivia, right? This, uh, I've heard this question on Jeopardy before, I think. Um, this is an indicator that the message was transforming the disciples to make them look more like Jesus. And they were worshiping and fasting when the Holy Spirit spoke and said, set these men apart for my work. Now, whether anyone heard this voice audibly or everyone heard this voice audibly, I don't know. But what's clear is that they got the message. They knew the Holy Spirit was saying, set these men apart for my work. They fasted, they prayed, they laid hands on Barnabas and Saul, and they sent them out. And I want you especially to notice the the way he speaks about it in verses 3 and 4, how God is at work through the church, right? In verse 3, the church sent them off. But in verse 4, Luke says, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So West Point, the uh, United States Military Academy, uh, has as its primary uh, reason for existence, right? Educating and training officers for the U.S. Army. Some students may study engineering, some may study history or business, but they all get training for things like military leadership and strategy. However, the students at West Point may specialize, they all receive the same foundational core training for the mission. Some churches may be really strong at engaging and caring for the poor. Some churches may focus on ministering to refugees or college students, but all churches ought to have the same foundational core focus, worshiping God as disciples who make disciples, building up one another and being built up by the Word of God and being ready for, focused on God's mission. Like West Point prepares officers for the army, every church of God should be preparing laborers for the gospel mission. Now the second observation I want to make is that this, this next account on the island of Cyprus, where they go first uh, in the Mediterranean Sea, is kind of like a micro-model of Paul's missionary method. Okay? What happens here with a few individuals looks like and in a sense anticipates something that's going to happen again and again, in almost every place that Paul goes, okay? So let's read, um, starting back in verse 4 uh, through verse 12. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So, 
First, Paul proclaims the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So here's a Jewish man who claims to speak for God, but who actually misrepresents God. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now here is a Gentile man who wants to hear the message that Paul has. Okay? But Elimas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, so that's translation of it, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So the Jewish false prophet is trying to keep this Gentile hearer from faith in Jesus. But Saul, who was also called Paul, here's the name change, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Um, when you read the Bible, especially narrative passages, one of the questions you should always ask is, why did the Lord include this story and these details in his book? Uh, Paul and his companions went from one end of the island to the other, uh, from all over Cyprus proclaiming the message of the gospel, but we only see this one incident, this one interaction. Uh, and I think it's because this pattern is going to repeat itself again and again. Luke wants to get us ready, in a sense, to see proclamation to the Jews, then opposition from Jewish leaders, gospel fruit among the nations. And we can definitely see this pattern in the rest of chapter 13. So, from here, what we're going to do is I'm going to read the rest of the chapter, section by section, and I'm going to offer you five exhortations, okay? The first exhortation is to remember God's faithfulness to send Jesus the Savior. Starting in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel and you who fear God. That's Gentile proselytes, converts to Judaism. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. 
of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me is coming, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So brothers and sisters, remember God's faithfulness to send Jesus the Savior. Paul and his companions, they set sail from Cyprus up to the southern coast of modern-day Turkey. Uh, One thing about being IMB church planner, place like Turkey, is you get to visit all these ancient sites. We lived in, in our cities where Laodicea and Colossae and Hierapolis were. We went to this place for vacation uh, occasionally, where Paul and his companions sailed up to. Um, but after John Mark left, and Paul saw that as a desertion, uh, they traveled about 80 miles north to Pisidian Antioch. Now, there were multiple cities named Antioch in the ancient world. This is not the same place they left from, okay? Uh, that's why this word Pisidian is in front of it. Uh, today it's called Esparta instead of Pisidian. But um, they, they hiked over mountains about 80 miles north. Uh, on the Sabbath, they go into the synagogue. After the scriptures are read, Paul stands up to address the people, right? Now, Luke probably summarizes Paul's sermon here. He probably said more. Uh, but we can see Paul moves quickly from God's promises to the fathers, to the exodus, and into the time where we start seeing the stubbornness of the people of Israel, right? He, he kind of tells the story really quickly, but in a way that highlights the hard-heartedness and stubbornness of the people of Israel. God bore with them 40 years in the wilderness, which reminds us of the fact that, one, they complained and grumbled repeatedly, but that they refused to trust God to lead them into the land. He says they asked for a king in verse 21. Um, as a family, we are actually reading through 1 Samuel in our family worship times, and this week we read these verses where um, the people of Israel come to Samuel and say, hey, we want a king. We want to be like the rest of the nations. And God said to Samuel, and I think it's chapter 8, he said, they have rejected me from being king over them. So Paul's here hinting at their refusal to submit to God as their king. And then he references removing Saul also in verse 22, which again reminds us of Saul's disobedience. But all the disobedience of Israel and all the idolatry of the nations couldn't stop God's purpose of grace. It was in his heart to save and to bless and nothing would stand in his way. God had promised even immediately after the fall that there would be an offspring of a woman, seed of woman, who would come and crush the head of the serpent. God had promised that through Abraham's seed, through his offspring, All the families of the earth would be blessed. And as Paul alludes to here, God had promised David that his offspring, one of his descendants, would sit on an everlasting throne. Now, if you've been to the state fair, um, at some point you've probably either seen or at least heard uh, the the really loud sounds from the tractor pull. I've never actually seen it, but we've been scared out of our wits a few times buying ice cream nearby and all of a sudden these 
tractors start roaring. Um, but as these tractors start pulling, I don't know exactly how it works, but somehow there's a sled that as it goes, there's, um, the weight shifts forward and increases the load so that many of the tractors, though they start out pulling the load, they get slowed down. They can't make the whole pull, right? Um, if God had a tractor in the pull, it would say unstoppable. It's like a, one of those tractors pulling a radio flyer with a few bricks in it, right? Um, look again at verse 23. Of this man, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior Jesus as He promised. Brothers and sisters, God always keeps His promises. Nothing will stand in His way. Next, be amazed at God's wisdom in the cross of Jesus. Be amazed at God's wisdom in the cross of Jesus. Picking back up in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Uh, Paul's doing two things here. Uh, first, he's connecting the hard-heartedness of the people of Israel in the past with the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish rulers in his own day. He says every Sabbath the prophets are read, but they didn't understand. This is the way John puts it in chapter 1. Jesus came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Instead, they demanded his death. But Paul's also highlighting the wisdom of God in Jesus' death. Notice again, verse 27 Right? Though they, they didn't understand the utterances of the prophets, they fulfilled them by condemning the righteous one. Or as he says in verse 29, they unknowingly ready, carried out all that was written of him. You can rest assured that the Jewish leaders, Herod, Pontius Pilate, were not trying to fulfill the saving purposes of God in killing Jesus. But he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So in, in the wisdom and the mercy of God, when all the powers of hell were assaulting the Savior, what looked like defeat and weakness he was actually accomplishing the very purpose for which he came. Peter said the same thing in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Or in chapter 4, the disciples pray the same thing. They say, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, the Messiah, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do 
whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to occur. Brothers and sisters, there are few things as crucial as this to understand if you want to live a life of joy and peace in Christ. Life often feels upside down. It often feels dark when cells that are supposed to remove toxins from our bodies become toxins in our bodies, form of cancer, when the protective membrane around our hearts, which is supposed to keep it safe, hardens and the heart can't beat, pericarditis, um, when friends forsake, when dreams disappoint, when one group of people oppresses and exploits another, when a parent has to bury a child in these moments. You need to believe in the wisdom of the cross. There's never been a more unjust moment in the history of the world than when the innocent Son of God hung naked and bloody on a tree for crimes he did not commit. But at that moment, the justice and the mercy of God were on display to the full. When we see and rejoice in what God did at the cross, it gives us hope. One, that God is for us, who can be against us, but two, that no matter how bleak our circumstances, He can and will use them for good and glorious purposes. So brothers and sisters, be amazed at the wisdom of the cross. Next, receive God's testimony of the resurrection. Starting again in verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Now this is the central note of the apostolic message in the book of Acts. Jesus is alive. Jesus has conquered the grave. Four times in these verses we hear this word corruption. I think just for a minute uh, what it means here. Right? It, we typically use it in a different way than it's used here. David fell asleep. He died. He was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But God would not let his holy Messiah see corruption. He's referring to the decay of death. With the right help, 
you might, I certainly can't, but some people might be able to repair a corrupt hard drive. Under the right conditions, a corrupt politician might, might reform. But the corruption of the grave is different. Decaying corpses don't get better. The decay of death is repulsive. Think about the smell of rotting fruit or rotten meat. We shrink back, right? How foolish would it be to trust someone who is rotting and decaying in a grave to save us from the grave? As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have died in Christ have perished forever. But the resounding message of the apostles is that Jesus is alive forever. He has risen to the power of an indestructible life. Death has no dominion over him. He will never die again. If you've never been whitewater rafting before, I have not, but Lord willing, I'm going this week at our student ministry camp, you wouldn't dare try to navigate dangerous class five rapids without a guide, right? That's a death wish. Who else can we trust to guide us safely through the waters of death but Jesus, who's walked through them? And come out on the other side. Jesus died for corrupt people. People dead in trespasses and sins. People destined for corruption in the grave. That's what we deserve by our sin. He died in our place, but it was impossible for him to stay in the grave. And God declares him to be the Son of God in power through his resurrection. He stands crowned with glory and honor, and says, this is from Revelation 1, Behold, I died, and now I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Next, respond to God's invitation to believe in Jesus for forgiveness. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. This, in a sense, is the heart of the matter. In Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins. Full and free. But it's not automatic. Everyone is not freed from the penalty, the curse of sin. But everyone who believes is freed from everything that you need to be set free from. And there's no other way. The law of Moses that was given by God, mediated through angels, can't set us free from sin and guilt and God's judgment. 
Jesus said also in John chapter 8, same chapter we read from a moment ago with the kids, that whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Our sin makes us enemies of God. It keeps us far from God, but Christ died and he rose again to atone for sin and to bring us near. He says in Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses through his blood. So as the victorious, death-defeating, crowned with glory and honor king, Jesus says, come, turn, turn from sin and trust in me. I will never cast you out. I will raise you up on the last day. I will give you everlasting life. And finally, brothers and sisters, I encourage you to marvel at God's mercy to all nations. Marvel at God's mercy to all nations Picking up in verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So in these verses, we see something of a turning point in redemptive history. And we we could really have spent the whole sermon on uh, these verses. Uh, But in chapters 10 and 11, when God sent Peter to Cornelius and his household, it took three dreams, divinely appointed visitors, message from an angel to Cornelius, and Cornelius had to say, tell us what you came to tell us before Peter would finally preach to the Gentiles. For one Gentile and his household to believe. Right? God had made it clear that he's the God of the nations, but the disciples were still a little bit stuck in sharing mostly with Jewish people. But the goal was always to the ends of the earth. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And just like God accomplished the work of the cross, through his own people's rejection, so here, this door of hope opens to the Gentiles because of 
the jealousy and opposition of the Jewish leaders. I would encourage you sometime today or this week to to read uh, Paul's theological reflection on this from Romans 11. He explains how he sees this. um, It's working in a sense. uh, You know, it was necessary to speak to you first, he says, right? He says in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There really was um, in God's plan of redemption this this um, commitment to creating a people through whom all peoples would be blessed. But in God's wisdom, he, he decreed that these people's hard-heartedness and um, ears that are dull and eyes that are, that are blind to be the means that this good news would come to us. Please don't misunderstand. This is not a Certainly not a call for, and it's certainly not an excuse for any sort of anti-Semitism. Um, there were many Jewish people who did follow Jesus as the Messiah. The apostles were all Jewish. Paul, Barnabas were both Jews. Jesus himself was Jewish. Um, and, and like I mentioned, we still see after this chapter, Jew first, then to the Greek, Paul's pattern of going to the synagogue first in every place. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that Christ came and preached peace to those who are near, and to those who are far off. In his wisdom, um, God used the rejection, by and large, of the covenant people to offer hope to us who were strangers to the covenants of promise. And this should humble and rejoice our hearts. It should humble us Because before Christ came, we were not members of the household of God. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. But Christ came to restore to God, to create into one new man, anyone and everyone who would believe. Jew, Greek, man, woman, young, old, rich, poor. Anyone and everyone who believes without distinction. And this should make our hearts Glad. The result was joy. They began rejoicing, verse 48, and glorifying the word of the Lord. The nations did when they heard this. Again in verse 52, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is good news that should make our hearts glad. All people, Jew and Gentile alike, are invited to come to become part of the family of God. Again, The words of John chapter 1, Jesus came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So, I will close with just a few questions to you all this morning. First, have you rightly understood and embraced the apostolic message. There are many people who would identify themselves as Christians who've not truly understood and embraced this message of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. I was one of them for seven or eight years, from sixth grade until 19 years old, said I was a Christian, tried to do Christian things, but I hadn't submitted 
to the cross. I tried to earn my own way. I tried to please God by my rule-keeping and effort, trying to stop committing certain sins. It's not a matter of accepting your parents' religion, but of acknowledging your own sin and that Christ alone can save. It's not a matter of getting our lives in order, but surrendering our lives to Jesus and His mercy. So have you received forgiveness of sins and the righteousness that comes from heaven by faith in Jesus? Second, are you continuing in the grace of God? That's what Paul and Barnabas urge those who receive the message to do in verse 43, to continue in the grace of God. We sang a few moments ago, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We all have to be careful to continue in the grace of God by reminding ourselves of these truths day by day. We never move on from the gospel, but rather we build our lives upon the gospel. We continue in the grace of God by filling our heart and our mind with God's word, by being shaped and changed and renewed by his truth day by day. And we continue in his grace by worshiping him as a family, by being ready at any moment for him to redirect the course of our lives according to his mission. Third, as a church, who are you equipping to go as gospel laborers? Though Paul had a very unique ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles, this task of bringing salvation to the ends of the earth doesn't belong just to Paul. When Jesus first called Peter in the Gospel of Mark, you remember what he said to him. Follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Just like disciples seek to make disciples, churches seek to establish churches near and far. So who as a church are you equipping and preparing to go? Who appears in your family to be gifted in evangelism and disciple making? Who has unique job skills and training that would help them access unreached people groups that are hard to live amongst? How are you as a church family equipping these brothers and sisters? What's your training regimen To compete in the Olympics, athletes train to get ready. How are you getting one another ready for the mission and the work to which God may be calling you to the end of the street or the end of the earth? And finally, to whom would you send them? The gospel is here. It's come all the way from Jerusalem from Judea and Samaria all the way to the end of the earth, Raleigh, North Carolina. Praise God that we have heard this gospel. But there are still over 3,000 unreached people groups, that's less than 2% evangelical Christian, that are still unengaged, unengaged unreached people groups. That means there's no viable gospel work among them. Which of them are you? going to pray for. There are thousands more that are like the Turkish people, engaged, but still massively unreached and lost in the darkness. 
Which people groups might you as a church pray for? Which groups could you engage with a short-term team? Some of them have moved here. Last week, I was in, two weeks ago, I was in New Jersey, uh, the New York City metro, for a week, leading a short-term team to work with Turkish people. 40,000 Turkish people in one little town. And which, maybe there's a long-term team serving amongst an unreached people group that you as a church family could partner with, pray for, send people to encourage. Brothers and sisters, this light, this salvation is for the ends of the earth. And God wants to use you as a church family to get it there. Father God, thank you that when we were in the darkness, you sent Jesus, the light of the world. Thank you that when none of us had seen him or could see him, that you, you sent him to open the eyes of the blind. Thank you that you have caused the gospel to get to us. That you have got to open our hearts to give heed to what we heard and to respond in faith. God, we give you all the praise and all the glory for it. And I do pray, God, that you would use this local church to get this message of light and salvation and joy to the ends of the earth. I pray that you'd raise up laborers who will proclaim Jesus day in and day out here in these communities and to the ends of the earth. God, help us to live lives worthy of the calling to which you have called us. We praise you and pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.